Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, I just want to start the show by saying we've had a technical glitch at the very top of the show. And so the headlines that you heard a few minutes ago uh, were from a show that we produced yesterday. Uh, and, and, but it's funny that that would happen because I wanted to mention to you that, of course, uh, Political Rewind on the radio was preempted yesterday by uh, NPR's coverage of the impeachment in the House um, we did, in fact, though, produce a show which was available on Facebook, on our website, and is available as a podcast. And if you haven't heard it, I really recommend you uh, listen, may take a listen to it. We talked with uh, former uh, congressman and uh, majority and then minority leader Dick Gephardt and uh, former U.S. Senator uh, Gary Hart. Um, both of whom ran for president in the uh, 1988 cycle, and then uh, Gephardt came back in 2004 and tried to make another run. But they are now part of an organization that is working on free, on assuring free and fair elections in the United States. And we had what I thought was a really um, a meaningful conversation about preserving democracy, <clears throat> excuse me, at a very difficult time. So that show is available for uh, all of you to listen to on those, uh, as I say, in our podcast, on our website at gpb.org slash PR. Um, and, and it's, I think, worth your while. Um, all right. All that said, let's get right in to today's show. I, I read a piece in the New York Times this morning that I thought was interesting, um, saying that the White House is now essentially emptying out. Uh, people are uh, not coming into the office and they're getting set for the transition. And one of the things that the Times said is that uh, White House staffers are just simply exhausted from uh, the effort of you know, what they've gone through for four years with uh, President Trump, for better and for worse. And, and it seems to me that that's pretty much what we've all been going through, is that we're living in times that every other day we seem to be making history, and it gets to be kind of exhausting for all of us as we follow it. And, of course, the Georgia runoff elections made us the center of attention for the whole country, and that uh, extended our period of time in which we were so heavily focused on very difficult issues. Yesterday, again, history was made. The House vote on impeachment made President Trump the first president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. And this time, um, it was bipartisan to the extent that 10 members of the Republican uh, conference voted for impeachment. Um, we're going to start the show by talking about that and talk about the Georgia members and how they responded to the impeachment. And uh, we'll do that with our panel. It's Thursday, which means Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Kevin, thanks for being here today. I think it would be we cannot uh, let it go unsaid that your fears that the Cleveland Browns may not be able to uh, uh, mount a particularly strong attack against the Pittsburgh Steelers were ill-founded. You didn't show the right faith in the team. 
You're correct, Bill, and my faith is restored. And I would say this, those White House staffers may be exhausted, but those of us in Atlanta media and the panelists on this show are not. We are pressing on with this news and our effort to sort it all out for our readers and listeners. All right, Kevin, I like the way you said that. Uh, uh, just to po- make a point, the, the Browns clobbered Pittsburgh in uh, their game uh, on Monday night. Congratulations to you for that. All right, here are the other not-tired members of our panel today. They are uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwalt, professor of political science at Georgia State University. And Amy, this is a very busy time for you, of course, because the legislative session has begun and uh, you play a big role in the interns that are down there at the Capitol working with legislators. Yes, we've got a new crop. They uh, started officially in their positions on Monday. And especially due to the pandemic, they're actually playing a much larger role than normal because there's no other um, temporary aides or positions that were hired down at the Capitol. So really, it's the interns, the members, the permanent staff that are there all year, of which there's not very many, and that's about it. So um, it's definitely a very different feel down at the Capitol. I was there on Monday, and it's um, we're, we're going to see how it progresses. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's going on at the legislature during the show. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Andra Gillespie. Dr. Gillespie, as you know, is a professor of political science at Emory University and is also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. How are you, uh, Andra? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. Um, Eric Tannenblatt is here as well today. Eric, a longtime uh, leader in the Georgia Republican Party. Uh, He uh, worked for virtually every Bush who uh, ran for president of the United States was deeply involved in their efforts. He uh, was the uh, he was also one of Mitt Romney's uh, most trusted advisors during Romney's bid for the White House, um, and uh, he served as uh, chief of staff in the first term of uh, Governor Sonny Perdue. So, Eric, we're awfully glad to have you. By the way, now. Uh, is at Denton's, the world's largest law firm, where, Eric, you oversee the global public policy arm of of the firm, right? Yes, glad to be here. And one thing you left off my bio, which uh, was really, um, really stood out to me this past week, was I started my career working in the U.S. Senate for the late Paul Coverdale. And I actually accompanied him on the floor of the Senate when he was sworn in, carried his Bible, and uh, had vivid memories of that this week when I saw the horrific scenes of what was going on on the Senate floor. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I, I remember Paul Coverdale swearing in uh, very well. Uh, and of course, be, uh, Paul, Paul became one of those, sort of a throwback. It's hard to remember, Eric, that there was a time when a, people like a Paul Coverdale worked with comedy and with a bipartisan spirit to actually get things accomplished, Eric. That's right. That's right. Um, All right, let's talk about impeachment. I'd like to start, if I can, uh, by playing a little sound of the Georgia delegation. And, um, Kevin, I'm going to start this because I'm going to play two sound bites. Um, The first, because I think they show the divide to some extent that Republicans are experiencing 
right now and how they approach approach impeachment and other aspects of, of politics in general. So Andrew Clyde, freshman member of the House, literally just sworn in from Athens, he opposed impeachment. Let's just listen to a bit of what he said in his first speech on the floor of the House. Madam Speaker, I rise today in opposition to the effort to impeach President Trump. This course of action will only increase dissent and disunity across our country, and it flies in the face of all efforts to heal our nation. Quite simply, it is a shameful final act of political retribution, retribution this president has weathered since day one. I have no doubt that those who breach the Capitol will have due process and their day in court. However, there will be no investigation in the People's House into whether the allegation against the president meets the criteria for a crime worthy of impeachment. So, Kevin, um, I'll start with you and then go around. So Andrew Clyde represented a, a feeling that many Republicans in the House expressed yesterday, which was essentially uh, this has been rushed. Uh, it is an effort to further smear the president of the United States, which Democrats have been doing for the entire time he was in office. Uh, and so it has been an unfair process. But but I think, and we'll hear in a couple minutes, that there were more extreme Republican voices. I think that Clyde, in his speech at least, sort of represented a position that wasn't out there on the furthest edges of what some Republicans are feeling right now. Kevin? Well, you know, I don't think you can argue that the process is rushed. It certainly is. I mean, uh, the Democrats are trying to get this done as fast as they can. And uh, rushed implies that it's uh, not well thought out and sloppy. And I think Democrats would argue with that. But um, I think the big question is whether how Americans will ultimately feel about it. Do they do they want to just say goodbye to Donald Trump or do they want this to drag on? Um, it. it Amy, Andre, and Eric, I want you all to weigh in. Uh, Amy, it, it, Kevin points out that this process was rushed. Uh, Democrats would say because the attack on the Capitol was so egregious that it had to be dealt with uh, quickly. Your thoughts? I think that that's where sort of maybe the fundamental tension comes in, that in many ways what we are dealing with is an interesting um, sort of void of leadership that we've seen. I mean, one of the things that has been most striking, really, following the attack on the 6th is how little we have heard from the normal people that we would have heard from leadership in Washington following it. There has not been, for example, press conferences by the White House. There hasn't been one by the FBI, DHS, right? All of these sort of normal things. And so I think in many ways that has left Congress to sort of fill that void and sort of show that we're taking this seriously um, and that there should be reactions. And so I think that's where a lot of people are coming from. Um, and it is difficult because of how closely it's tied that it, it is very political, yet it's also a comment about actions that were taken by individuals that link to political leaders, which make them sort of two different things. And so I think in that sense, um, there is this question of how do we react to it and how do we also show that actions that people have taken, um, this would be the argument the Democrats would make, that actions that people have taken um, are held accountable. Because I think that's the other issue is that we might say we want to move on, but the argument on the other side is how do we move on if by moving on that means those who committed egregious acts are allowed to sort of walk free. 
Yeah, I agree with um, Amy. I, I, one, am tired of the connections to Russia. Um, People are sort of holding it up like it's some sort of talisman that gets them out of anything that they want to get out of. And it's the equivalent of saying that, you know, your kid died, almost died of the flu when they were five years old. But like that gets them out of getting in trouble when they wrecked the car at 16. And I just think that, like, you know, this like, like sooner or later we have to stop this. And people are also hiding behind procedure. And so, you know, it calls for unity when the president hasn't apologized for anything or expressed serious remorse and taking full responsibility are the equivalent of cutting off the top of a plant but letting the root structure still stay there so this can just re-emerge again, maybe not with him, but with some other form um, of office. And so, uh, you know, I think it would actually be dereliction of duty to not address the issue. And this isn't like the Russian investigation where you don't know what was happening behind the scenes and you need to subpoena a whole bunch of people. He made a speech. People walked down the street and broke into the Capitol, held y'all hostage for a little bit, right, because you had to stay in your office and put up a lynching post so that they could try to kill the vice president in a hope that that would persuade him to turn around the election. We all saw it. You were there. You were witnesses to it, right? There isn't. We should go through the steps and go through the process, but like this doesn't need a long drawn out investigation, and I think they know that. Eric, um, how do you feel about this uh, argument that some Republicans are making that this was an unfair process because of the way in which it was undertaken? Well, I, I feel sad about the whole situation. I feel sad that we have a president that's been. Uh, I, This is uh, it's just very sad, sad to me, sad that our president has now been impeached twice. I do agree with uh, Andre. This is a different set of circumstances uh, than the first impeachment. And I think it was Amy who used the word accountability. Uh, There needs to be accountability. Now, the practical I mean, listening to Andrew Clyde, he's a freshman member of the House. The House is a very partisan chamber. Uh, You know, you sort of follow your leaders and the majority of the House all took a position. Now, there were some that showed profiles and courage. You know, the the one who's gotten the most attention has been Liz Cheney. And I think if you listen to her comments and what she said, uh, I think that it was very powerful. And and she, you know, cast a vote based on principle. And I think we need to look beyond the individuals and the personalities and think about you know, history. And, you know, do we tolerate behavior like this in the future? And I think the answer to that personally for me is no. So I want to play another soundbite from another Republican member. Uh, And Eric, as long as the ball's in your court, I'll start with you on this, because this is where I'm talking, wanted to talk about this split in how Republicans are coming out of the Trump era. This was freshman Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech on the floor of the U.S. House yesterday. Democrats have spent all this time endorsing and enabling violent riots that left billions in property damage and 47 dead across the United States. Democrats are on record supporting violence when it serves their cause, in their own words, on social media, on interviews, and on fundraising platforms at Blue. Democrats support defunding the police when it's someone else's city, someone else's home, and someone else's business. Democrats will take away everyone's guns just as long as they have guards with guns. 
Uh, so, Eric, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we, we've always known that she's a QAnon supporter. Uh, she is certainly not embraced by uh, some in the more mainstream of the Republican Party. But, you, you know, there is this you as a Republican uh, watch that sort of thing. And I would think wonder how you ever are going to reconcile these two very different uh, places that Republicans find themselves in right now. Well, I mean, first of all, we were talking about uh, we weren't talking about partisanship here. And what she just gave was a partisan speech. I mean, we were talking about an attack on the Capitol and actions that were provoked by the the president. So I don't know why she's bringing up these other uh, issues. Now, you you know, I I just had a conversation with a longtime Republican who, you know, I'm not going to disclose his name, but he said to me specifically about Marjorie Taylor Greene that, you know, he's embarrassed by her candidacy. And, you know, if she continues to be polarizing, she's eventually going to marginalize herself. I mean, look, this is she was someone who you, you mentioned her acceptance of QAnon beliefs. She was one of the people that was in the White House, that small group of Republicans, you know, at, you know, trying to, you know, overturn the Electoral College vote. You know, she wouldn't wear a mask on the floor. She, you know, you know then yesterday she gave this speech about, you know, said she's going to uh, introduce impeachment. She's going to try and get Joe Biden impeached after he's he's sworn in. And, you know, this person who I talked to that basically said, I mean, she's a joke. And while her constituents, you know, may have been, you know, fired up to vote for her over time, what they're going to find is that she's going to be marginalized and she's not going to be able to, you know, represent them well in the Congress. And, you know, they're, they're, the voters are going to have to decide what to do about her. I think Eric makes a good point in that um, the the danger here, not just with uh, trying to make political hay at a time when uh, particularly a freshman person in Congress uh, can get a lot more attention than they might other otherwise. The other danger is just being on the wrong side of history. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I cannot imagine that when history is written, that the folks who did and said some of the things uh, during that, uh, you know, the, the, those here, the initial debate about impeachment are going to be happy about um, how they're reflected. I mean, this is um, this is sad, as Eric points out, and it was a chance for people to stand up. And I and I do think um, uh, history will be much kinder to Representative Cheney than it will be to Marjorie Taylor Greene. In addition to that, I think, you know, it's just really important to combat the whataboutism. Um, I mean, so, you know, Representative Green's comments were eloquent, but they were eloquently wrong. And, you know, this whole idea of let's just rehash all the stuff this summer so I can get in every talking point from my campaign isn't appropriate. It's not an appropriate pivot to actually being a legislator and doing your constitutional duty. And moreover, right, first of all, if Black Lives Matter had stormed the Capitol in the way that these guys did last week, they would have been met with much deadlier force. I mean, that's, I mean, every Black person I've talked to saw that and was like, we'd have gotten shot if we had done it. The second thing is they didn't do it. 
right? I mean, if we're going to talk about, like, you know, armed insurrection, you know, whether it's at the Capitol, whether it's trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, those weren't Black Lives Matter people who were doing that, like, at all in any way, shape, or form. And to try to sort of create this false equivalency because it makes you feel better and it, 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 it allows, allows you to not deal with sort of, like, the, the, the mess that Donald Trump did and that, no offense, she was complicit in, right, is just like it's not acceptable. And, and part of being held accountable is being held accountable to not making speeches like that and being called on it when you do. So, and, and Amy, all that said, the difference between an Andrew Clyde, maybe, and a Marjorie Taylor Greene in terms of what they said yesterday, nevertheless, represents a very, very stark split in the Georgia Republican Party that, uh, you know, we know that the majority of uh, Republicans across the country, and I assume if we had brand new Georgia polling, we'd see something similar, still are supportive of President Trump by uh, wide uh, margins. uh, And yet, the fights that we've watched go on between Brian Kemp and President Trump, between David Schaefer, the chairman of the party, and uh, and um, uh, more mainstream Republicans who have not been willing to support the conspiracy theory that Trump actually won what was a rigged election in Georgia. I mean, this is something they're dealing with even now as they meet down at the state capitol to try to deal with. And it's very hard to see what the future of the Republican Party looks like as long as this inner Nicene warfare is going on. They're definitely standing on a precipice. Um, it's something that at least, you know, at home, I know my husband's probably listening to this going, oh, God, I've heard this for years. But the Republican Party has for a while been a somewhat uncomfortable alliance between a set of groups who, at their core, have some real conflict, right? We've got fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, evangelicals, and then the Tea Party who sort of defy this but really – um, bring with it a lot of kind of group threat, uh, for kind of lack of a better term, and, and sort of backlashes to change in that. And so they have aligned themselves, right, to be able to gain political power and within voting because we're a winner-take-all system. But the problem is, is that many of their sort of core beliefs are really at tension. And I think we're really seeing that coming out, right? We're seeing it in um, the new... Uh, determinations of Senate chairs down at the General Assembly, right? Uh, Three of the people who signed on to a number of the letters calling into um, suggesting that there was malfeasance and fraud in the Georgia elections have been removed from their posts. Um, The lieutenant governor has been one of the people out front saying, no, that's simply not true, and we need to move forth that. I think we see it in the fact that um, the most sort of threatened Republican members of the General Assembly and really sort of going forward, um, even in Congress, are those that are representing Metro Atlanta, right? Those suburban voters who are saying, wait, this is not who we are. This is going too far and these sort of extreme things, right? We've got very different groups that we see um, sort of across the state. And part of that is going to have to be reckoned with, right? Is the excuse me, is the party going forward going to reflect, for example, the policies that are put out by uh, the lieutenant governor, right, saying that, no, the elections actually were done in this way, we should focus on things like reforming foster care, or are they going to be the views that are put forth by Marjorie Taylor Greene, which are suggesting that um, 
we are still sort of in this existential fight for the good of the country. And so in many ways, like, yes, the answer to that may be violence and to kick out those that disagree to, um, you know, to, to shoot people and things like that. And it, it puts us in really sort of stark refrain. So, Eric, uh, Amy mentioned exactly the specifics that I was going to talk about in terms of what's playing out at the state capitol right now. As she said, the lieutenant governor, who has maintained from the start that there was no fraud in the Georgia election, uh, has stripped of the chairmanships uh, uh, people who supported the conspiracy theories in one way or another. So Brandon Beach, Matt Brass, Burt Jones all lose important uh, chairmanships in in uh, Brass's case, he loses the position of chair of the redistricting uh, committee in the Senate. So that's a dramatic action, Eric. But there are certainly bound to be members of the legislature who will be very unhappy with Duncan about that. And uh, I assume that's just going to exacerbate tensions down there. Well, first of all, actions have consequences. And, you know, as we stated before, people need to be held accountable. Now, just on a technical, you know, while Jeff Duncan, it's, it, everyone's pointing to Jeff Duncan, there's a committee of the Senate leadership of which he's part of that makes those decisions. So it wasn't just an arbitrary decision uh, by him. But those senators did take actions that uh, were inappropriate. I mean, filing a lawsuit against the governor and the secretary of state, you have to be held accountable. But let, let me take a step back a second, because while right now uh, there's this division uh, or, you know, what appears to be a big division in the in the Republican Party, this is not something that's never happened before. I mean, there there are times that I can look back. I'm not that old, but I do remember in 1988 when Pat Robertson ran for president and brought in a whole new cadre of people into the Republican primary process and these social conservatives that were Robertson supporters uh, tried to take over the Georgia Republican Party. And I think you remember that, Bill. And, and, and what ended up happening, and I think it culminated with Paul Coverdale's election in 92, is that they assimilated into the party. And that ultimately led to the Republicans taking majority status in the state. So while things are really ugly right now and seems that there's you know, splits and different factions, uh, it will get sorted out. It, it, it's not going to happen, you know, without there, you know, being some controversy. But uh, you know, that's just part of our process, and we'll be stronger well, for it yes, when it, it does get worked out. Kevin, I want to give you the next word, but very, very quickly, just to follow up on what Eric is saying. It's true that the Pat Robertson uh, supporters ended up, to some extent, being assimilated into the party, but it was also the opening that Ralph Reed needed, our own Georgian Ralph Reed, uh, to become a major player in terms of evangelical politics and engaged and helped move the party further and further to the right in the years uh, even following that Robertson uh, uh, aborted presidential bid. Kevin? Well, Eric mentioned two things, and I was actually going to call him about this uh, sometime this week, but now I got him on the show. I can just ask him both his, <laughs> both his, both his uh, history uh, you know, and his knowledge of Republican politics at all levels and the consequences for things. So, Eric, there's been this movement afoot to pressure corporations, PACs, and major individual donors to pull support, the financial support that they give to uh, these Republicans who voted, who stuck with Trump in this or who tried to undermine the election results. I mean, uh, 
And I want to know what you think of that. I mean, on one side, it's um, how could you give money to these folks because of what they're doing and we need corporate leadership to demand better things for our country. On the other side, we know a lot of companies just give all across the aisle, you know, both sides of the aisle because it's a common sense thing that they do. What will happen there? And what do you see? Um, as, do you see that as significant? Kevin, well, as I, you I, often do on this show, wait, or I'm sorry, Kevin, as okay. you often do on the show, you do a very nice job setting us up for the next segment of Political Rewind because we have to get to a break right now. And I do think some of the accountability measures that are happening in, in corporate America and across the board in other parts of our life, too, are going to be interesting to uh, watch unfold. So we'll take that up as soon as we come back from our first break on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Professors Andrew Gillespie and Amy Steigerwald, Republican insider Eric Tannenblatt and AJC editor Kevin Riley join us today. Uh, as we went to the break, uh, Kevin wanted to know how Republican Eric Tannenblatt feels about the fact that we now have corporate America really responding strongly to uh, to President Trump's uh, uh, encouraging what a, a pretty clearly was an insurrection at the Capitol last week. Uh, not only corporate America, but I suppose in its own way, another corporate entity, the PGA, has pulled its uh, most important championship away from Trump's golf course. Uh, and there are other actions certain to follow, and I don't even have the list in front of me. There are a lot of others. Uh, Eric, you've spent a many, good many years being one of the most successful uh, fundraisers in Republican politics. So this question is especially pertinent to you right now. Yeah, well, look, I think corp corporations uh, over the last several years have become much more involved uh, in issues in terms of how they contribute dollars. And I think it's because they're, you know, attuned to their employees, they're attuned to their customers. This is different, though, because what we're talking about here is respect and value of the rule of law. And we're talking about people that voted to decertify the election results, delegitimize free and fair elections. And so I think you have to separate that from corporate America getting involved in, you know, just broader political issues. And, and so I, I think that's the thing that a lot of uh, companies are, are struggling with right now. Um, and, you know, I, and, and a lot I've seen, you know, dozens of companies and professional service firms that have, you know, frozen their packs. And they're they're trying to sort it out and letting the dust settle. But I think this is different because you're talking about the decertification of free and fair elections and the rule of law. Amy? No, I think that's a great way to put it, that there is this real tension between what it is that we're doing and sort of the arguments that we hear. Um, one of the things that keeps being said is that lots of people now have doubts about the elections. They have doubts about the election because their leaders told them to have doubts about the election. And 
one of the things in many ways that we've struggled with from the very beginning is the fact that usually we can depend upon the president of the United States to give us factual information. We depend upon our leaders to give us factual information because they have more knowledge than we do, right? They're getting information from all these places and we've had this disconnect um, really from day one with sort of the silliness over how many people were at the impeachment where we can't actually trust the information that's coming out from the White House. We don't know what is true and what is not. And that really does create, because the idea that we would not believe what we're hearing from the White House, that we would not believe what we're hearing from our leaders, sounds insane, actually, right? We want to be able to look to them for this information. And so that does create this real cognitive dissonance and I think makes it very difficult for people um, at home and when you're being told, look, there's all this fraud in the election, why wouldn't you believe that? Right? The thing is, you don't have the information. The people you're getting the information from are telling you this incorrect information. And that starts to really undermine the entire system. And until we really confront that, until we really can get to a point where people admit those were not true facts that I was giving you and I knew it, we're going to be within this struggle and it's going to be really hard to move forward um, and also sort of unify as a country. I, I agree with Amy. And I think the other thing is that it, what this is, is sort of the anti elitist and anti expertise underbelly of populism. Um, there are some elites who are trying to wrap themselves in populist clothes, um, perhaps unsuccessfully like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. But I mean, really, this is a confrontation with people who just do not want to accept the fact that in certain areas or aspects of life, there are people who study this more. And so by virtue of their work and study, they may know a little bit more about this than, you know, other things. So, you know, don't trust your senator to like rewire your house, but like, you know, you should be able to trust them to, you know, be able to parse the constitution and tell you what the legislative process looks like. And now what we're seeing is that there are people who are coming in who sort of come in and think anybody can do this. And no, I don't have to study. And no, I don't have to pay attention to facts. And they haven't been checked on it enough. And so what I see are corporate entities, us trying to reassert um, that role by using the market to be able to do it. And I think it's an open question of how successful they're going to be. Um, what could happen is, is that we're just going to see sort of the creation and expansion of the subaltern state where groups that don't feel oppressed, whether that's legitimate or not, are just going to grow and create their own platforms and their own networks where they can still sort of like revel and whatever it is that they believe, whether or not it's true um, or not. And I think it's a question of whether or not that's going to be, you know, whether or not that's going to be sustainable. So, for instance, if you're going to create new Internet platforms for communication, do you need the Silicon Valley type or do these people have the knowledge to be able to create and sustain and fund those platforms in their own community? So, you know, I, I, I uh, like Eric's optimism that things are going to sort themselves out. But I don't see in an era of polarization the same level of socialization where you can take a Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Jordan and sort of slowly be like, you can't act like that. And no, I'm serious. Like, you cannot act like that um, and sanction you. I think it's, it's, it's at best is going to take longer. And then at worst, we might have to accept that, like, they, like that they may need to be challenged electorally um, and, and perhaps voted out of office that they're going to be recalcitrant. So um, I want to move on and talk a little bit more about state politics. But one point before I do, um, the, the, the Georgia delegation split 
of course, uh, completely along partisan lines on the impeachment vote yesterday. And I wanted to play those two Republican sound bites just because it shows us the different ways that Republicans are, you know, the different paths they seem to be on. But of course, the Democrats in the delegation spoke uh, in favor of the impeachment of the president, saying that his he did, in fact, they believed incite an insurrection. All right, let's, Kevin, um, your uh, newspaper got sort of this interesting informal scoop the other day when Greg Bluestein published an interview he did with Brian Kemp. Uh, and to no one's surprise, uh, Kemp told Greg, yep, he absolutely intends to run for re-election in 2022. Uh, he was a little less... Uh, interested in talking about the fact that as a result of his feud uh, with Donald Trump over the legitimacy of George's election, that it now appears he's going to face a quite likely a primary challenge before he even gets to participate in the general uh, election. It was an interesting interview, Kevin. Yeah, I I don't think uh, anyone uh, is surprised that uh, Governor Kemp isn't, you know, running up a white flag at this point. I mean, he may change his mind later, um, but he's a, he's a fighter. I mean, he, you know, in every aspect of his uh, uh, political life, I mean, he's not been a guy to, to back down from a controversy or, or, or a bit of, or a fight, that's for sure. I mean, I think part of it could turn out to be how this plays out for Trump. I mean, I believe the motivation, if the Senate has one to convict him, will be the ability to take the next step to prevent him from running for a public office again, federal office again. And if he is silenced largely, that, you know, Brian Kemp could be in a different position when the, the, this election rolls around. If Trump is still a force in Republican politics in some way, I think uh, the governor is going to have a big problem. Eric, um, one of the other things that uh, Kemp commented on in that interview was that he felt that uh, that Purdue and Leffler lost because of the distractions put in place by the president, by other Georgia Republicans who kept pounding away at the notion that there was a conspiracy that denied the president the victory here in the state. And he, and he said something to the effect of um, he really saw the Leffler campaign, particularly since he appointed her to that job, playing out quite differently. Uh, he thought that uh, she would have a chance to appeal to women, that she would, uh, uh, be, because she has a business background, uh, would appeal to people who believe that it's important for those with business skills to help lead our government. I mean, it, and the fact of the matter is, Eric, and I, I think Leffler was a, a, a candidate who you uh, we're hoping would win. Uh, nothing played out, particularly in the Leffler campaign, the way uh, I think Republicans expected it to. No, and and I think I, I agree with the governor. I think that the sideshows and distractions since the November third election uh, did not allow the Republicans to be unified going into a runoff. And having been involved in numerous runoffs over the years, you have to do everything right, and you have to be unified. It's all about turning out your vote. And, you know, I applaud the Democrats. They were unified. They were fired up after a successful presidential election. And while we were running, you know, two runoff elections, we also had the distractions of people challenging the November 3rd election. And that was all, you know, pushed by uh, the president of the United States. Now, I think to your other point about Leffler not being able to run the campaign that the governor anticipated, I think the governor's intent was spot on when he appointed her. Uh, he appointed her because he did, you know, after his election in, in 2018, 
uh, the data showed that we had a problem, Republicans in the suburbs and in Atlanta. And if you look at the governor's record since he's been in office, he's appointed a number of women, minorities, uh, Hispanics to various positions throughout the government on the judiciary and should be applauded for that. And his appointment of Kelly Leffler was another example. But then what happened two months later, Doug Collins gets in the race and forced that what was supposed to be a jungle general election into basically a primary between Collins and Leffler and who was going to out Trump the other. And unfortunately, I don't think Kelly was able to run the campaign that she would have run had Doug Collins not been uh, in the race. And so I think to your first point, I would say that President Trump uh, and his challenge to the November 3rd election created uh, a big distraction. And I think Doug Collins getting in the Senate race uh, created, uh, you know, forced Kelly Leffler to have to be something she was she she was not. Andra, another thing that the governor said, and then let me get Amy to respond after you do. Uh, he said this, and this is a quote. Most Georgians, even if they may disagree with me on an issue like the heartbeat bill, which virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia, they've been supportive of 90 percent of the other issues that we've taken on. That's why we've got to keep our eye on the ball. If we do that, we're going to be very successful in two years. So, I mean, the question is, the heartbeat bill is a big, big measure to, uh, say, put to the side and talk about 90 percent of the other things. Uh, the the uh, uh, coronavirus campaign has not been going particularly well here. The feuding among Republicans has been harmful to Governor Kemp. But but specifically, when you hear him say they support me on 90 percent of the issues, wh- what do you think when you hear that? Well, I think he's making a very partisan statement. So I think he needs 90 percent of Republicans. I mean, he's obviously not talking about Democrats there. Um, and um, and I think that that's telling. Right. So some of the sympathy that, um, you know, Governor Kent may have received from Democrats because he was bullied by Donald Trump, you know, is episodic. And so that's not going to translate into crossover votes for him. Um, you know, certainly not, you know, in the primary and definitely not in the general election. And so I think he does have to be on guard for that. I mean, I think his fate is tied to, you know, inversely to, uh, you know, how much pull Donald Trump has in the state and whether or not Doug Collins can give himself any distance from from President Trump. Um, So, you know, I do expect a challenge, but, you know, I think there are people who will not forget abortion, but I think that there are fewer people who are going to forget how he's handled COVID-19 and his approval numbers don't suggest that, you know, 90% of the state agrees with him on stuff. I think Andre is exactly right. And I, I think it actually goes back to the point that Eric was making, but because I agree that Doug Collins getting in the race definitely pushed uh, Kelly Leffler to run even harder to the right than she was. But what I was struck by, even when she was introduced at the very beginning, now, granted, there was in fact, concerted pressure that Doug Collins should be the appointment by the president. But when she was introduced, she was also still introduced, not with sort of a broad view towards trying to really appeal to people in the suburbs and know that issue. Instead, she was introduced uh, that she would be a strong supporter of banning abortion. It was introduced on sort of very conservative um social issues and without kind of a broad appeal going there. And I think that that's sort of a a similar thing when it comes to um, 
the statement that's there of where is it going to go, right? To what degree, right? Going into, right, going into sort of the, if we go back 18 months, Governor Kemp had, in fact, high public approval ratings across the state. Um, the issue is that we have not seen that continue. Some of it has to do with the handling of the coronavirus and the fact that there is a belief that some of it was handled in a very partisan way um, with sort of an ignoring of sort of what was coming out from public health authorities. Some of it has to do with the fights we've seen. HB 481 is not an insignificant part of that, of where that approach is. And I think it's, again, trying to struggle with that of how do we mesh all of these different things together, right? How much attention should the uh, social conservative issues get as opposed to fiscal conservatism or uh, limiting government? And how does that mesh together in a way that um, can make an argument that is a bit broader? Because I think that is one of the real issues that the uh, Republican Party is facing. All right, Amy Sagerwald gets the last word in this segment. We got to take a break. We'll be right back with more. We're uh, running relatively short on time, uh, but I want to mention something quickly that I will talk about more in a future show. Um, Amelia, Sam, and I have been talking a lot about the fact that in these really troubling times in which we're continuing to live, the virus continues to uh, pin us down. Uh, Obviously, our politics are incredibly divisive. Um, We started talking about what are the small comforts that we take in life? What are the little things that give us some sense of comfort, of relief, and maybe even joy? Um, In uh, Amelia's case, she loves to go out and ride her bicycle, And she buys vinyl records. She loves going to explore the record stores and find rare records, uh, records of artists that she's loved over the years. Uh, Sam is a huge soccer fan. Uh, He and I talk about uh, the Premier League, European soccer all the time. And in my case, it's without question listening to uh, specific music. Uh, Thelonious Monk, the great, great jazz artist, is somebody who always brings me comfort. But so does Dolly. So does Hank. So do the Carter family. And yes, even K-pop, which my daughter has introduced me to, and I think is a lot of fun. So we want to know, what are your small comforts? And we have a phone number set up, 404-685-2426. We'll post it on our social media platforms. Um, but you can also tweet me at uh, Nigat B uh, or at our Political Rewind uh, t- Twitter account or Facebook, whatever. We want to hear from you on all of that. What are your small comforts? What's helping you get through? And we'll share what you have to tell us and be specific, not just, oh, I like music. Um, all right, Eric Tannenblatt, real quick, I know you wanted to respond on this whole issue of the uh, where where the you know Republicans are headed, especially in the aftermath of the Kelly Leffler David Perdue defeat. So let me give you just a second on that. Well, I wanted to respond to something Amy said about the rollout of Kelly Leffler because at the time you have to put yourself back in the time when the governor appointed her. There was a lot of other names that were floated out. Kelly was not known, and the first group of people that he had to comfort were people in the party. And that he had to say she is okay, and 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 so I think that factored into the rollout. The other thing I wanted to say too is that we have a lot of time before the governor's election. I know it's two years away, but a lot is going to happen between now and then. 
And right now we're in the midst of a legislative session. There's going to be a lot of people, legislators, that are going to want certain pieces of legislation. They're going to want to forge alliances with the governor. Uh, the COVID crisis, we're, we're, we're struggling with this just like every other state is struggling with it. And some will even say that some of the policies of the governor have actually allowed our economy uh, to grow better than it has in other states. Speaking of the economy, the fiscal health of the state is better than I think people projected that it was going to be. Um, and so there's, there's plenty of time. And in, in, in terms of the Republican Party, in May, uh, the Republicans are going to have a convention and elect a new Republican Party state chairman. And I think that's oh, going to really gonna be, be a, fun to watch unfold. Right. right. And so I think that's where you're going to start to see, you know, where the party's going. All right. Uh, Kevin, before we run out of time, your paper ran a big editorial today on the fact that the rollout of the vaccine here has not gone well. We are down like fifth from the bottom in terms of states that have administered vaccines and uh, the coronavirus. We're up to like a seven day rolling average of more than 9000 cases, more deaths than ever before. Hospitals are incredibly crowded. Um, Kevin, things are not looking good. Right. I, I don't think they are. And one of the things the editorial mentions is that, you know, there are many states having problems. Um, I would love to see the legislature, and I think a lot of people would love to see the legislature take on Georgia's public health infrastructure. Uh, I get that there's a lot of red meat out there to debate, and, and Eric mentioned the realities of electoral politics that affect legislation. But Georgia needs to develop the reputation as a place that can uh, handle uh, the public, a public health crisis, because there are almost certainly more to come. You know, uh, Andra, it's not as if, in terms of the vaccine rollout, it's not as if we didn't have time to prepare for um, putting in place methods for uh, distributing the vaccine, uh, and yet we seem to be kind of stumbling on this. Now, I got to be transparent. I was one of the very lucky people in DeKalb County who was able to get a a reservation for a vaccination and actually got my first shot on Monday. But I was just lucky. And there are a lot of people who aren't getting anywhere. You would have thought, Andra, they could have been more on top of this ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, you would always hope that people would rely on logistical expertise and people who understand process. Unfortunately, this wasn't modeled at the top. So at the federal level, when they you know, are holding back vaccines and when they aren't letting experts do their job, um, and when they're not letting people kind of, you know, when they're not hiring people to be in these positions, this is what happens on the back end of it. So the idea of really lean government isn't always the best idea. And we see this in, in cases like this. All right. I'm give you, you've got the last word on the show today, Andre Gillespie, because we are just completely out of time. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, uh, Eric Tannenblatt. Andre Gillespie and Kevin Riley, my partner on the Thursday show. Kevin, good luck with the Browns in the next round of the playoffs. To all of you out there who are listening today, we always appreciate your being with us. Think about your small comforts and call and leave a message on the phone number that I gave you a few minutes ago or whatever. Tweet, Facebook, any way you want to do it. Uh, until I see you tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please do everything you can to avoid the further spread of this awful virus. I'll see you all tomorrow.